again, thank you, moms. You know, moms come in all forms. Uh, there are some moms who, you know, are natural moms. They've had children themselves. There are some moms who became moms through adoption. There are some moms who became moms through foster care. And, and, and then there are moms who have been moms to a lot of kids. I think of Miss Lindsay. Ms. Lindsay was the lady who took care of me when I was two, three, four years old. She was our next-door neighbor, and Mom was having to work, and so Mom would drop me off at Ms. Lindsay's every day, and Ms. Lindsay's, who taught me to love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and vegetable soup. She was, in so many ways, a mother to me. And then there are mothers who were teachers who had a tremendous impact in our lives. I mean, teachers who literally were... Uh, fulfilling the role of a mother. And, and then I think uh, many of you who are mothers spiritually. Uh, I was blessed with so many spiritual mothers, ladies who had a profound impact on my life. You know, preaching about mothers on Mother's Day is always difficult. Mother's Day is probably the one holiday in American culture that mixes an incredible range of emotions. For some, it's an incredible day of joy. For others, it's an incredible day of heartache. And it can be everything in between and sometimes both. It was 38 years ago, I hope I'm getting that right, 38 years ago this last week that June became a mom. Uh, Our oldest son was born on a Wednesday evening. And, and one of the things that happened when our son was born was is that he suffered a partial collapse of a lung. And so the doctors very quickly knew something was wrong. I could tell that something was wrong. They, they brought him by very quickly. June got to touch his hand, and out they took, brought in x-ray machines. And, and I remember the doctor finally calling me in saying, your son's got a partially collapsed lung. And I said, what does that mean? And he says, well, hopefully it'll reinflate itself and he'll be fine, but it, it could continue to collapse, causing the other one to collapse and he'll die. And I was like, well, thank you for, you know, kind of blunting it a little bit for me. They brought him by in a little NICU out unit, and uh, the hospital our son was born in didn't have a NICU, and so they were going to have to move him to a different hospital. And so June got to see him just for a moment, and then he was gone. When she got out a couple of days later, we went by Methodist Central Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and we got to see her son. And then I took her home. Mother's Day was coming. Sunday following his birth was Mother's Day. And June couldn't wait to go back and see her newborn. Only problem is she woke up 38 years ago today with a fever. And so she called the NICU and said, I've got a fever. Is it okay if I come see my baby? And they said, oh, no. If you've got a fever, you can't come. And so on Mother's Day, 1983, I went down to Methodist Central Hospital in Memphis and saw our son by myself. The nurses had made a little Happy Mother's Day card, took our son's footprints and put them on a card and then put Happy Mother's Day and gave it to me to take it back to June. Do you know what it's like to be a mom and on your first Mother's Day you can't see your new baby? I remember handing the card to June and June beginning to cry. We were joyful. We've got a son. We were sad because he wasn't with us. 
on our first Mother's Day. And that's the problem with Mother's Day. It has all kinds of emotions wrapped up in it, some good, not so good. And and so today I'd like to explore those and do the same thing Troy did during our communion, and that is reflect back on... I guess what we would call maybe the ultimate mother. We're in a series of lessons called Move, and we've dropped to a sub-series that's on the life of Jesus, specifically on encounters of Jesus with people in the world. And there was no one Jesus had more encounters with during his 33-plus years of life than his mother. Luke tells us in his gospel in the opening three verses how that he had done a thorough investigation of the life of Jesus. Notice the language here. He said, I carefully investigated everything. And I personally believe that when Paul was in prison in Caesarea at the end of the book of Acts, Luke is with Paul. And I can see Luke writing his gospel, writing the book of Acts, going up to Jerusalem and sitting down with eyewitnesses and saying, could you tell me what you saw? Could you tell me what you heard? And while I can't prove it, I would like to think that Luke had the privilege of sitting down, of all people, with Mary. Mary would have been in her 70s at that time at least. And and I don't know if she lived to be in her 70s, but Luke writes more about Mary than any of the other gospel writers. And it seems almost first-handed experience. In fact, if you turn over to Luke chapter 1, you begin to see the story about Mary and, and what happened to her. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which was her cousin, the mother of John the Baptist, Gabriel came to Mary. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And And, of course, Mary's thinking, what kind of greeting is this? And, and of course, the angel Gabriel goes on to say, you're going to be with child, you're going to give birth, he's going to be called the Son of God, you're going to name him Jesus. And she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come on you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. young teenage Jewish girl in Nazareth having to process a lot of information. Her response is simple, I'm the Lord's servant. Literally in the Greek, I'm the Lord's slave. May your words be to me, or uh, may your word to me be fulfilled, or may it happen as you've said. And then we have Luke's story about the birth of Jesus and about how that Mary's life was, you, I mean, you want to talk about changing. It was going to dramatically change. The first thing she does is she heads down to see Elizabeth. I mean, she's got to have some encouragement. And of course, Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And you have there in Luke chapter 1, you have the story of their interaction with one another. John is born. Mary heads back up to Nazareth and she's pregnant. At least three months, maybe four months. She's showing And when she gets there, words travels very fast, especially to Joseph. You do know your fiancé is pregnant, right? I can't imagine what Joseph went through. So he prepares to divorce her quietly. But as he's preparing to divorce her, he, he lays down and he goes to sleep and an angel comes to him. Don't be afraid to take her because what she's telling you is the truth. 
By the way, I don't know if y'all ever thought about what it was like to be in Nazareth when a little girl claimed that God made her pregnant. That gets a little hard to believe. I don't care who you are. And so Joseph decides to go ahead and marry her. And by the way, you need to understand the culture. The culture is is that if a boy and girl get together before marriage, then they're supposed to marry each other, or at least the boy pay the bridal price for the girl. And when Joseph said, I'm going to go ahead and marry her, it was the same thing as saying to all the village there in Nazareth, Joseph is the one who got her pregnant, even though both Joseph and Mary knew it wasn't true. And so the angel tells her, you marry her, she's going to give birth Because of the Holy Spirit, you're to give him the name Jesus, and Joseph does it. And then the angel leaves them. They travel to Bethlehem, and and Jesus is born. And several months, maybe even a year later, all at once, Joseph has another dream. Now, if I'm married by now, I'm getting suspicious of Joseph's dreams. You know, he wakes up and he says, we've got to leave. The angel says that Herod's trying to kill the baby. And so they got up and they fled to Egypt. And again, if you can put yourself in Mary's shoes, I mean, everything going on with her is just absolute chaos. And then they get down to Egypt, and Herod dies, and Joseph has a third dream. And I can just see Mary when Joseph wakes up that morning going, oh, no, not another one. Yeah, we're moving back home. And they head back to Nazareth, and they settle there. And then I can see almost Luke as he turns to Mary and says, do you have any stories from his childhood? Maybe when he was a young teenager. And you know, if we went around the room this morning, I suspect all of us, if we were to ask mothers that question, do you have any stories about your kids, especially when they were teenagers? Every mother in here that has grown children could say, oh, yeah. And Mary could say, oh, yeah. In fact, there was that time when he was 12 years old. And what I've done in the text is I've paraphrased it. I've taken the text from the NIV and I've substituted it from a third-person pronoun to a first-person pronoun so that you hear it in Mary's own words. And so I hope you'll give me just a little leeway to do that. Notice the words. Every year, we would go up to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. The story begins. And when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, we went up to the festival like we always did. Faithful Jews. Every man had to go up three times a year to Jerusalem. Had to go up for Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. They did it. Faithful Jewish people. And so she said, we went up to the temple, and after the festival was over, while we were on our way back home, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but we were unaware of it. Now, the way you went to Jerusalem is you went in caravans. Your whole village would go. You would go with relatives. You would go with brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles and even grandparents. And so you can imagine this entire caravan of Mary and Joseph's family heading from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, and now they're heading back to Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph are just assuming he's with the rest of the family and friends. Notice the text. Thinking he was somewhere with our family and friends, we traveled for a whole day, and when we stopped for rest for the night, we began looking for him. I can see Mary doing this. 
All right, here's James, here's Simeon, here's Joseph, here's Jew, uh, Judas. Over here's our dog. Where in the world is Yeshua? Yeshua, James, where's your brother Yeshua? I hadn't seen Yeshua. What do you mean you haven't seen Yeshua? He's not in my group of friends. And so they start looking all over the place for Jesus. I want you to think about that for a moment. She goes on to say, we couldn't find him. We had lost Jesus. You ever lost a child? Now, if you've got a lot of kids, you probably have to admit yes. You might not want to admit it, but you probably have to. I've got a family that's close friends of mine over at Northside, and they've got three, uh, excuse me, got four kids. And one Sunday, they always came in right as church was beginning. And so about the time, you know, we'd start singing, they'd come in, they'd sit in the middle section of the pews there at Northside. And, boy, this one Sunday morning, they came in, and all of them sat down, and the dad sat down, and he looked, and there was his oldest son, his oldest daughter, his second daughter. And he noticed that their youngest son wasn't with them. He was about two years old. So he looked at his wife, and he said, and she looked back at him and goes, and so he jumps up. I mean, they'd lost their youngest son. And so he goes looking for him, you know, looks in the auditorium, not in the auditorium, looked in the foyer, wasn't in the foyer, went out to the car. He's sitting in his car seat, still locked in, just enjoying the day. You know, I'm sure thinking, hey, I thought I was going to get skipped church today. You know, wow, this is great. You know, and of course he told me, and I'm like, you know, I'm calling child services, right? I mean, how do you lose a child? Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. We headed back to Jerusalem to look for him. I can't imagine what it was like to realize he wasn't with them. The fear. The concern. My sister, when she was about two years old one time, I'm I'm the second of four children, and my older brother and me and my younger brother were all in school. My sister was about two. And mom got to looking for her one day at the house and couldn't find her and panicked. Mom ran outside. She looked. She she asked neighbors, have you seen Donita? Donita's my sister's name. No, we haven't seen her. Mom was just absolutely terrified. What's happened to my daughter? She went back and decided to go back through the house one more time, looking everywhere, every closet, under every bed, only to find my sister had crawled under the bed and gone to sleep. Going to sleep. I mean, sound asleep, my mom terrified. I can't help but think Mary must have been terrified. And then I want you to notice up there, verse 46, after three days. And I can't help but think all these years later, after three days meant something different to Mary as she's telling the story. I mean, did she just pause for a moment when she said after three days? Because as Troy said this morning during communion, it would be after three days before word would come to her. By the way, Jesus is no longer dead. He's alive. He's been raised from the dead. What? No way. That's not possible. Yes, it is. Three days probably meant a lot to Mary. But it took them three days. Have you ever thought about where you would have looked? I mean, you're looking on the way to Jericho, uh, on the way to Jerusalem. You're going to Jericho. You're heading up the hill there to Jerusalem. You're looking at every ravine. You're looking along the side of the road. You're looking everywhere. And then you get to Jerusalem. Never ever thought what it was like trying to find Jesus in Jerusalem. 
I mean, have you seen a little boy? He's about five foot tall. He's got dark hair. He's got dark eyes. He's got olive colored skin. Yeah, I've seen about 5,000 of those today. I mean, what do you do when every kid looks like your kid? They go perhaps to the house where they observe Passover at. You see, when Jews would come to Jerusalem, you, you wanted to eat Passover inside the city. And so houses would rent out the roof of their houses, large rooms like the upper room Jesus was in years later. I mean, I can just see them going back to the house their family had used. Have you seen our child Jesus? No, I haven't seen him. She said, we found him in the temple courts three days later sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his answers, excuse me, at his understanding and his answers. In other words, when you listen to the text, Mary says, not only was he asking them questions, they were asking him questions. A 12-year-old kid. What did Mary think when she saw her little boy asking the rabbi serious questions and then amazing them by his answers to their questions? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Anxious, concerned, and yet amazed. What's going on here? What is, what is this little boy doing? And, and notice the language. She says, literally, when Joseph and I saw him, we were astonished. I mean... Relieved? Of course they were relieved. But what in the world is going on with a 12-year-old kid in the temple courts with the rabbis talking and discussing and debating? I can't help but think that Mary's mind went back to years of working with this young boy. Teaching him the Shema. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but Jews always say the Shema in the morning. Hear, O Israel. Begins with the word literally, Shema Israel. Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then a very familiar text that Jesus would use to describe and answer the question, what is the greatest of the commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I mean, can you imagine Mary teaching Jesus that Shema, him hearing it, learning to speak words, learning to say it? How many times have you sat with your kids or your grandkids as they began singing, Jesus love me, this I know. They can't even say the words. But you recognize the tune. You know what they're singing. And it brings joy to your heart. And I can see Mary there as she's looking at Jesus among all of these wise men. And she's thinking, wow, it paid off. I mean, I can't help but think when she would teach him songs. I mean, how many of us were taught songs? To this day, there's songs that I remember. Blake, you can sing them. You know, my favorite was growing up was this song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. You see why I like that song? I mean, when I read in Scripture, you had to climb up in a tree to see what was going on. I related to it. You know, I mean, I hated parades. I never could see anything in a parade. You know, what do you mean, here comes Santa Claus? I can't see him, you know. I can just see Mary singing this song. We don't know the tune. But it was a song that would become one of Jesus' favorite because it was about him. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
And then, of course, you turn over to Luke chapter 4, and Luke 4 tells us that Jesus would always go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. And I can't help but think of all the times that Mary had said, hurry up, Jesus, it's time to go to the synagogue. And then going to the synagogue and watching him get old enough that he could finally read the scrolls. And there's no doubt by the time he was 12 years old, he was so knowledgeable that he could quote them backwards and forwards. And here's the rabbis and teachers down in Israel going, what kind of kid is this? He's a kid that Mary and Joseph had taught trained, and loved, and nurtured, and brought up to be who God created him as God to be. Mary steps in, and I said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I mean, moms, can you imagine the emotions in her voice? And, of course, you're thinking, was she really angry at him? I don't know. I guess you can be angry at the Son of God and not sin. But I'm sure she wanted to know, what in the world, why in the world have you done this? And I love Jesus' response. Why were you searching for me, he asked us. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And, of course, Joseph is over here to the side going, wait a minute, you're, you're what? I'm your father. Yeah, no, complicated, right? You see, Jesus at 12 years old was already exploring both his identity and his ministry. He was transitioning. And y'all, transitions are incredibly difficult. The text goes on to say, but we did not understand what he was saying to us. There's a lot of moms right now going through some hard transitions. We all do it. I mean, Jesus was going through the transition from literally adolescence to adulthood. See, he's 12 years old. Jewish boys celebrate their bar mitzvah at 13 years old. 13, the bar mitzvah literally means son of the law, son of the covenant. And here he is, the last year of just being a kid. But already he knows who he is and what God's called him to do. And of course, if if I could just say to all of us as parents, whether we're fathers or mothers, have we prepared our kids for what's coming? Especially spiritually. Because they're going to reach that time where if we haven't prepared them, it's going to be awful hard to get them there. I mean, I think of the transition from being at home to being in kindergarten. I mean, a lot of us remember going over to the little red schoolhouse at Good Pasture and dropping our kids off and watching them as they cried and we cried as they went into school. It's a tough transition. And then, of course, there was the transition from high school to college, which a lot of parents in here today are going through. That's a tough time. You know, we, we took both, or I took both of our kids to college when they went to college for the first time. My parents were quite different. I tell everybody I was getting ready to go to Freed and Daddy was watching sports on television. I went by and I said, Dad, I'm off to college. And Dad said, good luck. That was it. I'm serious. And so I go outside. Mom at least follows me out on the, on the porch and I'm sure started wiping away some tears as I got in my brand new Ford Pinto and headed off to Freed. All by myself. 
And I'm sure just as soon as she went in, dad and her started dancing, saying, another one gone. Finally got another one gone. You know? I suspect mom wasn't dancing. And by the way, have we prepared ourselves for what's coming? I mean, this year's seniors. It is hard to say goodbye. My experiences when my two boys were very different. My oldest one I took to uh, Tennessee Tech in Cookville, cried all the way home. I mean, absolutely squalled all the way home. Took my second one to Lipscomb and sang rejoicing all the way home. I don't, you say, why the difference? Just difference in kids. But have we prepared ourselves? I mean, a lot of people say, well, it's just you and June all over again, right? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. And no. It's mixed emotions. And the text goes on, and Mary says, Then he went down to Nazareth with us and was obedient to us. And Mary would go through so many other transitions in her life. One of the things I've often thought of is why Gabriel appeared to Mary and then waited about four months to appear to Joseph. Have you ever thought about that? Why did God allow Mary to have to go back to Nazareth and go through all of that that baggage that occurred when she got there with Joseph thinking she had cheated on him, preparing to divorce her quietly, all the whispers going on in the community? Why did God wait to send the angel Gabriel to Mary? Excuse me, to Joseph. And the only answer I can come up with is because he knew Mary needed to go through this. Because you see, when our kids go through transitions, God is also working on us, transforming us, teaching us. I suspect Mary and Joseph learned more when Jesus was 12 than perhaps even Jesus did. And so right now, I would simply encourage all of us who are going through transitions, listen for the voice of God. Ask, what is God trying to teach me? And then trust that what you've instilled in your kids, your grandkids, is going to be used by God to turn them into what God wants them to be. Mary ends with these words. But I treasured all of these things in my heart. And I know that you moms, you grandmoms, y'all have got treasures in your hearts of stories about your kids and your grandkids. And how precious are those memories. But you know, if we want to be making a difference in the lives of our kids, our grandkids, it begins with making our li- a difference in our own lives. Making sure that we're in tune with God because the best gift I could give my sons, the best gift June could give her sons and our grandchildren is faithful parents and grandparents to God. I don't know where you are spiritually. But it may be time that you say, I want to give the greatest gift to my mother, the greatest gift to my son or daughter, the greatest gift to my spouse by becoming a child of God. And if we can assist you in doing that today, why don't you come? Let's go. We stand and sing.